So let us come together and breathe. I'd like to share a prayer, an invocation that I practice every day. Um, it's by a beautiful book uh, called Illuminata by Marianne Williamson. And it's my daily prayer uh, that I usually do in the bath. And I ask to be a clear channel. So it goes like this. Divine light, I invite you to enter where you already abide. I ask that I be a clear channel of your light and your love in service of the highest. Please, please utilize me in the highest way so that I may be of service to all those I come into contact with today. Where would you have me go? What would you have me do? What would you have me say? And to whom? Please be with us at this time and allow this conversation and this dialogue to be of the highest consciousness so that we may share the highest truth with those that are listening. Namaste. You're listening to Missed Podcast hosted by Lena and Daniela of Mystic Home. We created this podcast to share our passion of empowering people. We want to encourage you to find and connect with your own abilities and inner strength. Our aim is to help you breach the gap of being human and connect with your spiritual self. And by sharing our own experiences and reflections, we open up the conversation for mystical ideas and how to integrate them in our human lives. Hey, you guys, welcome back to Mystic Podcast. Welcome back. And we're so, so excited and happy today because we have a wonderful guest that we've really been looking forward to inviting into this podcast. Yes, I, I, I am beyond excited to talk a little bit more about Andrew and, and, you know, how I got to meet Andrew. So in the podcast today, we have Andrew Morneas, and I am just... So excited to talk about how I met him and how he came into my life. So I met Andrew when I was in Bali on my yoga teacher training and he came in and before he came in, our teacher told us, so Andrew, you know, he has like the energy on its own. He's like this wizard. He's just like this magical being and, you know, not to put a pressure on Andrew, right? Yeah. But <laughs> that was kind of like some big shoes to fit into. And, you know, my teacher was like, he's just going to make this training, you know, what it is. And, and I was like, who is this man? And then Andrew comes in with his energy, with his, you know, mythology, with his, you know, deities and this kind of like goddess um, energies and stories and just kind of shift everything for us and really, really brought everything together. So Andrew is the person that introduced me to mythology, to introduce me to Tantra, introduced me to philosophy, um, yoga, so many, so many things that opened up my perspective of what I thought, you know, was there in terms of I grew up as a as a like a Catholic so then you know just opening up to all these other gods and all these other goddesses and deities and stuff is it was just super eye-opening for me so I hope you guys find it as eye-opening as it was for me and without further ado Andrew welcome to the podcast welcome hi hi thank you so much for having me here um, Daniela, I, when you were just talking about it, it transported me back to Bali and uh, our experience there is quite um, a beautiful uh, experience. Um, and yes, uh, Les does, Les Leventhal, who was the teacher that invited me and was part of the teacher training, 
Um, it was big shoes to fill, but I actually just step in and be with the students. And I just remember you so well. And I'm, I'm just so grateful that you've invited me to come back here and share a little bit more with your listeners. Thank you. Yeah. Can, can you tell us a little bit of, you know, what you do, how you came into who you are today <laughs> and just a little bit of who you are and what you do? Yeah. So my, um, I'm a history and philosophy teacher. Um, I'm also a yoga teacher trainer and have been a trainer since 2003. Uh, I'm a lecturer also in mythology, um, mainly Hindu mythology, and I teach uh, the deities, the gods and the goddesses, and mainly how they live and breathe within us. So I take some very complex myths and try and distill them down to their core teachings and make them livable and pragmatic. Um, and allowing us to see them not as something outside of us, these gods and goddesses that are outside of us, but rather the divinity that is within us and those archetypal attributes that are within us. Um, I'm also a choreographer. I've been dancing since I was seven years old in Cypriot folkloric dancing. Uh, I became a choreographer um, at the age of 23. And, um, yeah, so chore I, I've had a great choreographic career, but I gave it up about 20 years ago and it's made a, a comeback over the past three years with a wonderful project that I've been working on called Dance of the Deities. So I'm, I feel very blessed and really fortunate that that has returned unexpectedly into my life. So it's a little bit about me. Great. I, I remember one of the core teachings that is something that, you know, got to me and that stuck with me for so long is that what you just said about you know not looking at these deities and these goddesses as like something outside of ourselves but something that is that within us and kind of breaking them down or not breaking them down but destructuring in a way that we can relate to every single one of these things and understand and recognize the divinity that lies within mm -hmm. and that was so different for me from what I've been taught before in terms of um like when we talk about when we talk about God and when we talk about all these other things from the church or things like that it was so outside of myself it was this you know part of me that needed to be good to that because that's so good and perfect and I'm never going to be as perfect and as good and when it came to like understanding these other deities it was more like no but they are also have their insecure like you know they have their like bad sides and their you know naughty sides or whatever and they're just mm -hmm. as me and and they live within me and I can be those archetypes and in many different ways of my life so so that was such a beautiful thing to learn and to embody it was one of the things that I really loved when I started exploring the Hindu deities is that all of them are flawed in some way and they're also divine and I think they reflect the human qualities that we have. So it was kind of a relief when they weren't this, these perfect figures but rather these somewhat, um, you know, flawed and beautiful and sometimes frightened but yet overall triumphant and very loving and compassionate um, aspects of ourselves. and. Uh, when I really dived deep into them, um, I, like you, felt very grateful that it was very different from the Greek Orthodox background that I was brought up with, which was praying to a God outside of me and then um, the only time that God showed up was when I stuffed up and it was all the penalty and penance and, yeah. um, you know, it was, it was suffering. And now I can view... I can say the word God now in a very different way mm -hmm. and I see it as simply love and all compassionate, benevolent, 
Um, so sometimes I will speak about um, the universe as God, and sometimes I will use the word love or goddess or source or light. So whatever word fits for you, I think that's the most important part because we all have our different translations of that. Um, but, yeah, it was really a, a, a real relief for me when I started to explore the Hindu deities is that they live and breathe within each one of us and they're not something outside of us and they show up all the time. <laughs> yeah. But how did that come into your life? When in your life did did this interest grow or did you always have it or how was that for you? In the deities, you mean? Mm -hmm. mm. Um, look, I was interested in mythology when I was really young. Um, coming from a Greek Cypriot background, I was really interested in the Greek mythology like Zeus, Athena, mm -hmm. Apollo, Hecate. Um, and I studied tarot when I was in my 20s. And so a lot of the archetypes that, were, that are in uh, the mythic tarot deck uh, were things that I was really fascinated about. But it wasn't really until I'd met my tantric yoga teacher um, and that was my first entry point into yoga that I really started to pay attention to them. Mm. And he pretty much one of the first things that he taught me was about uh, the gods and goddesses. Uh, his first teaching was Shiva is everywhere, wake up and clapped very loudly. Um, and then the second teaching that I had was Kali is pure love, do not fear her. So that opened a gateway into Tantra, into these really powerful deities of transformation, which are Shiva and Kali. Um, and because I was going through a real crisis at the time, uh, it really helped me to move through that in a very healing and transformative way. Uh, but over the years, I've found that the deities have called me. Mm. So, for example, Ganesha came very early on in around... 1999 and um, he just kept appearing this elephant god kept appearing and wouldn't leave me alone and uh, would come up in conversations or in depictions or images um, and so I started to really explore what he meant and what he was about um, and being somewhat because I was sexually abused when I was young to have that wounded child archetype within me that somewhat broken part um, really made me empathize with the broken part of Ganesha so he was the first deity that came to me and his ability to use the broken part of him in order to bring great wisdom was very um, attractive to me and very enticing and very compelling so I, I really explored Ganesha quite deeply and he became really the first deity that I dived into and eventually got tattooed on my leg. And uh, it was kind of like an imprint on my skin to say, uh, I was allowing him to be the protector at the gateway, the, at the base chakra of my being, so that then um, I was safe and protected and guarded and obstacles would be removed um, from my childhood. Yeah, because that, that was not, that was not an, an easy time. A loving time by my parents, but certainly not uh, an easy time on other levels. Yeah, beautiful. I remember we talked because we, of course, went through this story of like the broken part of Ganesha and and using that to, you know, 
kind of lead or to be our internal guidance of how we can, you know, show others wisdom and show others how we've been through things and how it made us stronger and how, you know, that becomes kind of our gift uh, and what we've been through so that we can be there for others in that situation. And I think for our listeners, especially now, I get a lot of people that come to me saying, you know, I'm not talented enough. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not, um, perhaps, uh, yeah, like good enough. Like there's all this like enoughness because of the lack of, you know, whatever it is or whatever happened, uh, within them that, you know, they don't have the perfect childhood. They didn't have the perfect, you know, I don't know, uh, growing up or things like that. So it's, it's so beautiful that you mentioned the fact that, you know, that brokenness or whatever we've been through, whatever we've gone through is actually what makes us us, what makes us so unique and what makes us so, you know, how do you say enough to share the wisdom that we've acquired throughout those years? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, Ganesh is a really, really fascinating deity unto itself. I mean, he's, an elephant-headed God. I mean, really, he's very distinctive. Um, and let me just say that when we're speaking arch- on an archetypal level, when I say he, I can also say she. Mm-hmm. So it's the little girl that's been broken inside us and the little boy as well. So it's beyond gender. Um, but, yeah, he's, he's, he had his head cut off at the hands of his angry father um, And then, so he became this unique being that has a face like no one else. And so that, first of all, in itself is allowing us to recognise that no one has our face, no one has our story, no one has our voice. Um, Yet our voice and our story and our face and our tale is necessary and important for the world because if it's not told through us, it's never going to be told again. And so that quality in Ganesha that is within us um, really fascinates me. Um, Also, you know, within that brokenness at the hands of someone else, i.e. is one of his parents, um, he also in a moment of anger and vulnerability and being exposed broke off his biggest tusk and threw it at the moon because he was kind of exposed at being an emotional eater. Right, and I can relate to that, being an emotional eater. But he yeah, was exposed too. to that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, so he, <laughs> and so he, you know, he had this attribute of anger that was like a, an attribute of his father, but it wasn't really the totality of who Ganesha is. Ganesha was a kind and patient and steady um, little boy or girl who was just doing the best that he or she could do. And um, in many ways in the mythology, he was given a lot of responsibility, way too much responsibility for a young child to, to have. But um, it, it was in this moment of being knocked off his centre that he kind of adopted this attribute of his father and, and got angry and broke his own tusk and threw it. And once he'd broken it, it was like, oh, my God, okay, I've um, got this broken tusk now at, the, at my own hands. You know, so this also reflects the brokenness, not only that comes from others in our lives, but also then the brokenness that we create in a moment of anger or a moment of anxiety or fear um, or sadness that then we break ourselves. But it becomes the thing I love. This is the part that I love about Ganesha is that 
that very broken tusk becomes the utensil that he ends up using in order to write the great epic called the Mahabharata, of which the Bhagavad Gita is in there, which symbolically represents the great epic of our own lives, the great epic of our own story. And so when we see that reflected back, we recognize that the brokenness um, and the unique quality of our face and our voice and the brokenness um, of our task can actually be the very thing bearing gifts so that we can tell our story, whether that's written or verbal or something that we share as an experience, as inspiration for others, that if we can find the meaning in that and the wisdom in that, that's a blessing because we can't go back and change any of it. But what I'm really committed to and what I love about mythology and the deities is, okay, from this moment, I, I can look back, but I can't change any of it. But what now? What can I do with that now? And can I see the blessing in it? So that's been something that has really, really kept me um, expanding and growing and taking some really dark stuff and challenges like sex, sexual abuse from very young. My father dying at, when I was seven from a heart attack. Extreme bullying for 11 years in school. I had no friends until year 12. Um, and then getting very sick at 21 and nearly dying. I mean, all of those things now, I can look back and I can actually thank them. As horrendous as they were, I can now thank them to say, wow, they have shaped who I am. And so now I'm really grateful for them. Certainly that wasn't the case earlier, but now I am. Yeah, and I think when we're going through the midst of it, like when you're in it, it's really hard to, like you say, have that blessing and, and kind of, you know, be super grateful that this is happening. But then it's like going through that as gracefully as possible and do the best that you can. And then you can look back and say, you know what, that was absolutely where I needed to be, where I was meant to be. And, you know, now I can take, the lessons of that part of me and then bring it to the world in in a way that that benefits the collective you know journey into this of like being a dancer and then after being a dancer you know becoming all the, all of this into tantra which I, by the way, just touching a little bit on Tantra, because I know that it's still, even though I mean with 2020, but it still is, it's a little bit of taken, especially here in Sweden, I mm -hmm. think taking as such a taboo or such a, you know, oh, that's, you know, only sex or only sexual. And my introduction to Tantra mm -hmm. with you was just pure static love, like pure joy in the <laughs> body. And so just touching a little bit upon like, you know, that idea of Tantra and what it really is and how it can be seen instead of what, you know, this taboo or, or what everybody, what everybody says, you know. You know, that's one of the, I mean, I still chuckle actually at sometimes when um, there is that misconception around Tantra because when I first came out, I mean, I was introduced to Tantra in 1997 and when I first came out and I told people, yeah, I've been studying Tantra. I'm a Tantra practitioner. They would literally look me up and down and go, oh, you're one of those. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, it took so long to be able to dispel the myth around it. Yes, there is a sexual component of, of, of it, but it's such a, a small part of the whole totality of what Tantra is. I mean, it's such a... Um, 
an expansive path and it never, it never really stops. It just grows and grows and grows and it expands our consciousness. Um, and I think it was one of the first times when it was introduced into the West because yoga had this very puritanical concept of, okay, let's raise, 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 lift our consciousness from the heart upward and let's almost like block all the lower chakras. And we as human beings, I mean, that it's, it's just, it's, it would be like trying to cut um, from the navel down off our bodies and then, you know, stumble around with an upper torso. I mean, it just isn't <laughs> going to work. So um, it was one of the first yogas when it was introduced to the West that actually not only spoke about the heart chakra and our voice and our intuition and our divine consciousness, but it spoke about our identity and our sense of self-worth. And it spoke about sexuality and it spoke about the, our connectedness to the great mother. Um, but because we see in Tantra the body as a temple of the divine, as a vehicle through which the divine moves through. Um, sexuality is a part of that. The genitals are a part of that, but they're not the complete part of who we are. There is so much to who we are as human beings. But that's the first thing that I think, you know, when it was introduced, 60s, 70s, there was this whole, ooh, ah, you know, people are talking about sex. And um, it's beautiful though nowadays, it's interesting you say in Sweden there's still that misconception, but nowadays it's it, it's changing. I think people are starting to see it more as a path of love, a path of expanded consciousness, um, a part of seeing the divinity in everyone and everything. I mean, that's 101 Tantra, really. That's the first stepping point is to see the divine in everyone and everything. So Shiva is everywhere, <laughs> wake up. <laughs> That's kind of the first principle. Um, one of the others that you touched on earlier, um, which is really associated with uh, the goddess Lakshmi is to see the Shri. So we, in Tantra, we train our eye to be able to see the beauty not only in the outward beauty that, that is really easy and effortless to see, but also in challenging situations or the shadow qualities or the dark qualities within ourselves or with others um, that sometimes are, are really unsightly and then we go, that can't be beautiful. But it's, not, it's, it's more about seeing the blessing in that, as I spoke about earlier. Um, in Tantra, it's called to see the Shri, to see the auspiciousness in that, the blessing in any situation because these things that happen to us, they're not some cosmic joke or, a, you know, God's mistake. They've happened from this perspective of Tantra as a divinely ordained, orchestrated um, experience that our soul has gone through in this flesh. And what we do with that is really up to us in that co-creation with the divine. And I think if we continue to connect with that higher part of us and nurture the wounded, flawed human part of us as well as our divinity, I think we, we can then find a sense of wholeness. Um, and I think that's really what, I've, what yoga is to me and what I've come to discover, you know, of 20 years of being a practitioner and a teacher. For me, 
yoga is to become whole, you know, as, as to is healing. I see healing, to heal, is in the word health. So it's not saying I'm, I have to cure anything or fix anything because nothing's, nothing needs to be cured or fixed, but rather to live and coexist in a space of health and wholeness by bringing together all the disparate parts of us, like our light and our shadow, like our flaws and our divinity, the imperfection in the perfection, the masculine and feminine, irrespective of whatever um, gender we are or the way we've we've come into the world it's really um a matter of bringing all of those together and to me that's what yoga is i i just want to touch upon this because you touch upon the shadow and the light and personally Mm. the way i've been kind of understanding this times that we are right now in this you know big society changes and um, limitations within the physical realm in which we are and all this stuff that is going on in the world right now and the evolution in terms of frequencies. But you touch upon the shadow and the light. And I think I would love to hear from you because for me, this is a personal, like I said, what is coming through and what I, my understanding of what's happening is this, you know, big shadow coming through to really show us what we've been kind of hitting in the closet for such a long time. And right now the shadow mm-hmm. is more in, I'm working with um, my mastermind group, which is a small group who work together. And it's so different. This mastermind that just started two weeks ago to the mastermind that I did, you know, three, four months ago, because everything was a little bit more slower pace and more, um, how, how do we say gentle, but right now the awakening of these people is so much into the shadow aspect. Like there's, you know, if a lesson is coming, it's not just coming as a, as a whisper It's coming as, you know, full blown, yeah, lesson that is coming and they're like the shadow is here and the sh- I can't look away. And so I would love to hear from you, your take on what is right now happening in the terms of like myth, from mythology perspective, I guess, you know, this coming of the shadow now and these lessons that are, I know, I don't want to say harsh, but they are definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what we're going through is really confronting. I think that's what I, how I would see this. And we are being confronted with our own shadow and also the collective shadow um, I, I really want to clarify, though, what the shadow is as an archetype that Carl Jung spoke of um, when he coined the term archetype, which are these imprints of our human experience that speak a universal language that transcends time, space, race, race culture, gender and age. And the shadow, he, a lot of the time when we hear the word shadow, we think of Um, dark and scary and fearful and unsightly. And yet the shadow from Jung's perspective is that which is undeveloped or that it is um, shrouded or that we're not paying attention to. And so we push it away and we neglect it and we avoid it and we try to almost um, suppress or repress it it at its worst. And until we can be okay with that part, it will complete, it will keep coming up. So we all have our own shadow, our own 
fears and undeveloped parts, stunted parts, parts that are wanting evolution and growth, but we're pushing them away. And very often the shadow is that thing we've shamed, that we've embarrassed, that we're embarrassed about that if or if anybody knew that I felt that or was that, would I still be included? Would I still be valued? Would I still be accepted? I think that's a, a big one. Will I still be accepted? Um, if I expose my shadow qualities. So that's the first thing I want to, uh, that um, I'd really would like to say about the shadow. Um, a couple of sayings, like De- there was a woman called Debbie Ford. She's passed on now, but she spoke about, she did a lot of um, expansion on Carl Jung's work on the shadow and she um, wrote uh, several books. One of them was called The Dark Side of the Light Chasers. Another one was called Why good people do bad things. And another one was called The Shadow Effect. And there's also a DVD on The Shadow Effect. And two of the quotes that really stood out for me were, um, either you will use the shadow or it will use you. And the other one was, that which you can't be with won't let you be. Love those. (laughs) Either you will use the shadow or it will use you, and that which you can't be with won't let you be. So we have our own personal shadow, but we're also now going through this collective shadow, this collective um, not only fear, but um, we're being confronted with the very things that we didn't want to look at. And a lot of that comes from, you know, uh, ignorance and avoidance and busyness and distraction and escaping and right now, I mean, personally, I'm having this isolation. I feel like it's given me some really valuable time to not only look at the light creative parts of me, but also to look at the parts that I've neglected and that have been undeveloped and working at integrating and bringing those things together. Globally, you know, I think the thing that I've noticed the most is fear. The thing I've noticed the most is anxiety and um, then also other emotions like anger and frustration and um, sadness and grief. And they're all valid. They are all valid emotions, but they all potentially lay within the shadow, you know, um, under the shadow banner. Um, And we can choose to ignore them and fight them and hate them. But actually, when we can bring them closer, then we can integrate those. One of the things that I learned very, very early on, so to answer your question in a a sort of roundabout way around what's going on at the moment, one of the things I learned very early on was that fear killed, love heals. It was like very clear cut for me. Um, And so I know that within these situations, I have a choice. I can either invest in fear or I can invest in love. And there's enough fear. And I'm not saying that when I invest in love that I'm completely ignorant to the fact that there is so much war, strife, disease, abuse, violence, and all the darkness that is in the world. I'm not ignorant to that, nor do I avoid that, but I accept that it can coexist with the other attributes of love, compassion, forgiveness, understanding, empathy, 
but I choose that even knowing that the darkness is there, I want to invest more in that because that's what I'm committed to. And I think if more and more of us can make a choice as to what we're going to be committed to, then we can devote ourselves to that and then be that in the world. Um, so what's what's happening from a, a, did you ask me what you asked me what's happening from a bigger picture mythological mythological perspective? I would look at this like the hero's journey that we all go through, but it's a big hero's journey. And um, Joseph Campbell really spoke about the hero's journey as having three main sections, a separation phase from the old world and a crisis point that tips us into the second phase, which is called the initiation phase. And I really feel that that's where we're at at the moment is this initiation phase where we've hit the crisis point. The old paradigm doesn't work anymore. We tip into what's called a crucible of change and we come down in a descent, which is really going through now. It, during the descent, we're offered gifts, um, uh, gems of wisdom. We're offered um, friends and we're also and allies and we're also um, confronted by enemies. But all of that is equipping us for the return and the ascent, which is inevitable. But it doesn't feel, you know, all that graceful or fun when we're going into the descent. Um, but whatever we learn on the descent, once we hit the, the bottom, which is the death or what we would call the, the great transition or the turning point, I love that, that word, a turning point, we hit the turning point and then there's nowhere else to go but up. So we start to ascend. And then we start to recognise the things that we learnt on the descent that we couldn't quite figure out if the, what use they were or what value they were. On the ascent, we start to gather those together and we go, oh, okay, now I can use these on the ascension and um, I can find the value in those now because I know that I'm, I'm coming out of the darkness, I'm coming out of the pit. There is one interesting part which um, is confronting the dragon on the ascent. Um, I'm not quite sure if we're there yet, but one of the things that I always hold true and um, stay uh, focused on is the third part of the hero's journey is called the return. And the return is when we come back to the world but with a completely different perspective. We are completely changed the old paradigm is no longer there. And this is my favourite part, which is with Joseph Campbell coined. He said, when we return, we always return with gifts to share. So when we return, <laughs> we always return with gifts to share. Um, so that's where I find the initiation phase that we're in right at the moment is a really interesting and crucial time that we're in. I, I think we've hit the turning point. Like this or at least I hope we have. But we're on, if we're on ascent or once we hit turning point and we start to ascend, there's still what's called the dragon. We will all meet our own dragon. We'll have our individual one. But there may be a collective dragon, metaphorically speaking. Um, but another one of the great quotes of Joseph Campbell says, he says, the, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasures that you seek. That's where the dragon is. It's like the cave you fear to enter 
holds the treasures that you seek. Um, so meeting our own dragon, being confronted with the very thing that we're most, most afraid of. I got asked once actually, just have you, I'm sure many of your listeners have seen the movie Avatar. So Avatar, there's this classic hero's journey. He can't, um, he, he doesn't have legs, he's disabled. So he shifts into the, uh, from the old world into this crucible of change. Suddenly he's this avatar in blue with, um, and he can run and he meets um, this warrior woman who trains him and teaches him and he goes through a transition and the death of the old way of being. And then as he's on the ascent, I remember there's this moment in the movie where he's out on a cliff edge and she's there with him and she says, you have to find your dragon and take your tail and let it entwine with the dragon's tail and then you can fly with it. And he says, how do I know which is my dragon? And she says, the one that wants to kill you. And then suddenly this dragon comes in and he recognises that's the one. He puts his tail and entwines with it, gets on its back and suddenly flies with it. So he utilises the dragon once he recognises it and allows that to be the, almost like the, the vehicle that lets him come back to the, to the new paradigm with gifts to share. Yeah, and wow. that's that's amazing. And that's kind of like coming back to, you know, whole loop into Ganesha, how Ganesha used the task, you know, to kind of ride mm. that journey too. So in Ganesha's story, that task that, you know, that he or she broke is also this dragon that at the end, you know, he kind of kind of reclaims as a gift to ride, to ride the journey. So <laughs> Exactly. The hero's journey is embedded in all of the myths um, of Hindu mythology, definitely. Actually, in all of all of mythology, it's embedded in there, but um, definitely in the Hindu myths, and Ganesha is a perfect example of that. It's very interesting to see also that you can find similar things in you know in maybe Greek mythology and then the Hindu mythology, and all of these different things. We're all talking about the same thing. And now when you're talking about the changes, I was thinking about uh, the different ages, like the Kali the Kali age that yes. is now in Kali. And I remember from one of my trainings, I, I hold teacher's trainings and I have a philosopher coming in and talking about it. And uh-huh. and I it just hit me when the whole Corona thing hit the, the world. I'm like, oh, we're in Kali. We're in this change. Yeah, Kali Yuga. Mm. So yeah, just coming into something new. And just like you said, with everything you've been talking about, we're we're running away from from our shadows, and now the the, the whole society's been like go 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 go, and then we hit a wall where we have to go inside, both physically, but what happens then? We have to go within, and then maybe now it's the time we get those lessons. And like you said, it's fear, it's anger, it's all of these things. But we have to sit with it. So it's yeah. it's very interesting to see that. You know, it's all coming back and we have to we have to break something to come out on the other side. And also that's remember right. what we have in the backpack, because that's that's the story. Even if it's from our family through generations, maybe it's the father's anger, and then we have to break that to move on and write our story. And it's still yes. a part of us. So I think just like you're saying, it's the collective now. We have to open our eyes to it. Yes. 
This is uh, interesting that you've touched on Kali because it's you're absolutely right. This is the Kali Yuga and Kali as a representation or a deity of fierce death and transformation, but also fierce love. Um, I, you know, I mentioned earlier that my second teaching was Kali is pure love, do not fear her. I mean, that was very early on in my tantric teaching. Um, and so when we can see it from this perspective, that this darkness, this ferocious transformation and death of the old way is actually coming from a pure space of love, even though it doesn't look like it now, it looks ugly and scary and, um, you know, out of our control. It's kind of in this sort of urgent frenzy. But if we can keep remembering that Kali is pure love, do not fear her. It's like saying the universe has your back. It always has. It's not going to let you down now. The great divine goddess and the great mother is not going to abandon you now, but it's like holding on and going, I am being carried and held by grace. Just remembering that. I am being held by grace. I'm being held by the great mother Kali. I mean, one of the teachings of Kali is when we look deeply into the eyes of Kali, she transforms everything into great beauty, love, and light. In other words, when we can look deeply into the eyes of our own darkness and also the darkness that we're going through, the great mother will transform everything into great beauty, great love, and light. Hmm. I, I, I haven't shared this with anybody, actually, but I felt the call to share now that Andrew was saying this and what i what i want to share is so i have my mom's aunt that lives in new york um mm -hmm. passed because of the corona a week ago and the most beautiful oh, thing so was that she left before she died because she died you know these people die alone in their hospital because nobody can go visit so she left a mm -hmm. note for the whole family writing about you know the same bye to everybody and I was reading, I, I wasn't really too close to her, to be honest, but I was reading and the most beautiful, like when she was writing, she hadn't died yet, of course, because she was writing this thing, but her soul was in such an elevation. And, you know, this is my, the people that I would say, maybe they're not so much into, into like, you know, transitioning gracefully. They're not, you know what I mean? Like you're talking about like conscious awareness of, of something that goes beyond this, this physical earth. But her awareness of everything was more like, we are love. This is, us. we're ascending. I go with peace. Um, see everything for, you know, for the beauty and the love. And so her, her view of it is just as Andrew was saying, like, do not fear anything. Do not worry. Do not cry. But instead, look at all of this in the eyes of love. And I go without worries, without... Like, she wasn't going in agony. She was going in such a so beautiful surrender of, I decided to go now and, and I'm ready. <laughs> so it was such a beautiful thing. It's like you said, it's it's... I feel like, yes, a lot of people are dying and there's a lot of darkness, but the ascension that's beyond, deeper than what's actually we can see with the eyes is just beyond the comprehension of how orchid, like how well orchestrated, 
orchestrated orchestrated thank you <laughs> how well orchestrated uh, this whole thing is yes i mean just listening to you wouldn't it be i mean that's the ultimate goal wouldn't that be beautiful if we all left this flesh like that yes because we're all, we're all going there right we're all going to leave this flesh that is 100% guaranteed we just don't know when but wouldn't it be beautiful? Is it, what did you say? It was your aunt. It's my mom's aunt. Your mom's aunt. Yeah. I mean, to have the coronavirus, which you know is, you know, I, I mean, it's as we've seen, so many people are scared of that. But inevitably, you know, your mom's aunt, you know, it was was going. She was transitioning, and she chose to leave in this elevated, blissful, loving surrendering manner i mean that to me is the ultimate goal of life like the ultimate the ultimate goal of life is to surrender like that it's like in in, for me that in yoga i shavasana is my most revered and um the most important pose out of everything in yoga practice um when i saw the the kind of tsunami of yoga teacher trainings that hit about 10 years ago because i've been teaching for about 20 years um so when i started to see all of these teacher trainings coming in and suddenly there's this difference between when i first started the staples in any class were tadasana maybe a virabhadrasana warrior one or two maybe a trikonasana There'd be a downward dog, a child's pose, and then a shavasana. Now the staples are, you know, handstand, scorpion, drop back, handstand. Um, <laughs> um, Kundanyasana, A, B, C to Z, Galavasana, <laughs> like these crazy arm balances. And I'm like, when did they become staples in our yoga practice, right? Because not everybody can access those. And it got to the point where about... Eight years ago, I thought to myself, all right, Andrew, what you've been, you know, you've been teaching for 12 years now. What is it you want out of your yoga practice? And I thought to myself, you know what, I don't want to get to the end of my life and say, woohoo, I stuck handstand in the middle of the room. To me, (laughs) yes, I can see how incredibly, you know, um, remarkable the body is and our mind is and our facility is to be able to do these extraordinary things but i really to that to me i didn't want to get to the end of my life and go yeah well that's what my achievement is i i can do handstand what i do value is every shavasana it trains me to let go more and more and more that's the mastery pose for me mm-hmm. so if there's anything by the time i get to i take my last breath that i can master and stick in the middle of the room, it's, it's Shavasana. <laughs> that's a great one. Yeah, that is, that's definitely it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so now when you're just inside, I'm guess you're also inside. You said you're, you're struggling a little, little bit about, and, you know, facing yourself in, in new ways. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. we always do, I think, but, um, mm-hmm. So what is it that you're you're working on in your, in your own practice and maybe also your teaching right now and in this time now with all of the changes? Mm. Surprisingly, I'm loving this isolation. 
I'm actually, I, you know, I, I appear, I show up as an extrovert, but I'm actually an introvert. I'm an, uh, so to go inside, to have this space, I'm actually really enjoying it. I'm very fortunate to have a lot of nature around me and a lot of space. Um, but to reference what you just said, it's been the first time that I've actually sat with me without teaching as much because I've, you know, my year's always very busy. I have a lot of teacher trainings, um, a lot of workshops. Dance of the Deities has been, you know, going crazy and wonderful all around the world. So I was traveling seven months of the year. Um, so be, to be able to stop and actually just be with me, it's been really um, beautiful, but somewhat unfamiliar to tell you the truth. It's been a really, wow, this is really strange, but strangely beautiful. Um, I love my solitude, yet I'm also able to acknowledge the difference between loneliness and solitude. There are times that I might feel lonely, but then I connect with source every day, so I'm never lonely. So that's part of my spiritual practice is my prayer that I shared right at the beginning of this conversation that I also practice that every day, irrespective of whether I'm teaching or not. Um, I tune in to nature. I've been loving connecting with nature, even if it's just to go for a walk or to go for the, to the beach or just get some fresh air. I've been loving that. been getting very creative. I mean, that's really a big buzz for me is creativity. Um, so I'm writing my book. So that, that finally the, the chapters are getting written and um, it's been quite cathartic, um, confronting, because I'm reliving and having to kind of face, as I'm writing these things, I'm having to kind of see them and re-experience them through these eyes. But inevitably what comes up is sometimes raw emotion that comes up that I'm thrown by, but now I've, I'm left with nothing else but to sit in it and be with it and befriend it and be okay with it. Cry if I need to, laugh if I need to, and then go back and write more. Um, sometimes stop writing and then go back to it. But I'm loving that part. Um, the Dance of the Deities, I've got a lot of creative um, dances coming through, new ideas. I, I wanted to, because, to, sorry, talking about the Dance of the Deity, I wanted oh. to kind of introduce that because our listeners have been probably hearing about <laughs> us talking about Dance of the Deities and they probably have no idea what we're talking about. So can you tell us just, yeah. you know, a little bit of what that is and, and what, projects you have coming off and, and yeah. Sure. So Dance of the Deities is a three-hour workshop that incorporates four of my great loves, which is storytelling, mythology, yoga, and dance. Um, and it, so we focus on, let's say, one particular deity. Let's take Ganesha, which, which we've spoken about. And so there is a dance called the Wisdom Dance of Ganesha, for example. Uh, the first 40 minutes are around opening up and sharing the mythology of Ganesha, almost as a lecture. Um, then another 30 minutes, maybe 35, 40 minutes is asana to prepare the body for um, the dance to come, uh, not just physically to open up the relevant parts of the body in preparation for the dance, but also to open up energetically um, and to explore mudras or gestures that will be related to, to the mythology and to the dance. And then there is a choreographed piece 
for each one of the deities and all of them are completely different that I've choreographed and I break that up into blocks of eight. So I'll teach you one block of eight. We'll practice that. Then I'll add on and then I'll add on. And eventually we learn the entire dance, uh, which for Ganesha is called the wisdom dance of Ganesha. And it's, it's taking all of the teachings from the mythology and embodying them and living them in a kinesthetic way. And then there's the fourth section, which is cool down, uh, integration and take homes. So um, that's the structure of the, uh, the workshops. Um, I didn't see it coming. Actually, Daniela, you were there. You were, it was in your, for your training in Bali yeah. that this first started in 2017. And I was um, teaching, it was a 300-hour teacher yeah. training that you were doing. And I remember, <laughs> I remember I was teaching philosophy um, of Shiva Nataraj. I would always get the one till six time slot. And so at three o'clock was usually, because you guys were really practising strong asana in the morning, and by the 3 p.m. moment, um, I was trying to teach philosophy. And you can feel when the energy drops. So I said, okay, everyone, come on up. I'm going to teach you the five divine acts of Shiva Nataraj with movement. So I remember teaching it to you. And then one of the girls, Katie, who's an ex-dancer. Who, by the way, Katie, sorry, Katie is now on this mastermind that I'm doing. So we're doing some amazing work together. So we kept, and we sometimes talk about, you know, this dance that you were just talking about. So it's amazing. (laughs) Together. But sorry, continue. Please give her my love. I'm forever indebted to Katie for this moment. Um, So I was teaching the sequence and all of a sudden Katie just says, Andrew, what are the counts? And I go, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four. (laughs) And this voice came out of me that I had not heard in 20 years. I was like, where the hell did that voice come from? Because I hung up my choreographic shoes in 1998, right? So... Or 1997, 98. 20 years I'd hung them up. Hadn't danced. I was a yoga teacher trainer and transpersonal counsellor. And suddenly this voice came out of me. It wasn't, welcome everyone. It wasn't my, my yoga voice. It was hardcore dance, 1990s dance voice. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I remember teaching you the sequence. I still have the video, Daniela. It's so gorgeous to when I watch it back. And so I taught that sequence and then everyone kind of got really lit up. And I remember I got lit up by it because it was like, oh, my God, the choreographer archetype within me is, wow, he's here. I remember the training finished. So this is how it started. I remember the training finished. And I'm a night owl, so I meditate at night. And I had a, uh, I was staying in Bali and in Ubud, and it was about 11 o'clock at night. And I was in a meditation and I got this very clear download. And it was just this very clear voice saying, Dance of the Deities, Dance of the Deities, Dance of the Deities, Dance of the Deities. And I went, <gasps> I opened my eyes up, my mouth, the jaw dropped, and I opened up my computer and I was like a madman, like, um, typing down the structure and going, oh, my God, the wisdom does the Ganesha structure, um, the mythology, asana, choreographed piece, cool down. And I remember I had no idea where, I had no idea when I was going to do this, but I found an image that could go with it. I had the structure and I went on Facebook and I just said, Dance of the Deities coming soon, post. 
<laughs> and then it was like it was out in the world and I had no idea where I was going to be doing it. So then I kind of had to work backwards. It was out in the universe and then I was working to bring it into manifestation. Mm. I found a studio in Melbourne with mirrors. We allocated six, sorry, five Saturdays. There were five different dances. Um, the wisdom dance of Ganesha, the Dharma dance of Gayatri, the ecstatic dance of Lord Krishna, the fierce love dance of Kali, and the divine dance of Shiva Nataraj, which was the one that I shared with you guys. By the time this, this is what I love about social media, by the time the second one came out, the Dharma dance of Gayatri, I get an email from Sydney, from a school in Sydney in Cronulla, who said, hi, we love what you're doing with Dance in the Jadies. Would you like to bring it to our school? I said, sure, no problem, it'd be great. By the time Carly came, which was the fourth one, I mean, I don't know, well, everyone loves Carly. They either love Durga or Carly. And the women flocked. There was 40 women all dressed in black. They <laughs> came in and it was like this room full of Shakti and primal energy and sexual energy. It was so palpable. And um, I... Uh, we we did the dance, we did the workshop. There was actually a guy who, who was filming who I invited and he said his hands were shaking filming it because the like the power of the women. Um, and so then I posted that up, the Fierce Love Dance of Carly, and that was in what I think August 90, uh, sorry, August 2017. And then all of a sudden there was just this flood of emails from all over the world saying, Will you come and do Dance of the Deities? And it, from there, it just took on a life of its own. It's just really gone crazy. And I've just had to surrender to it. The deities are in the house. They come through us. They are through every single participant. Um, and the depth and the beauty and the grace and, and what it's brought out in participants is something I could never, ever have anticipated. I'm actually really quite humbled by it. Um, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it was taken up by the Vienna International Dance Festival last year and they asked me to put a proposal in and I thought I was going to do one workshop. Yeah. I'll just put a proposal in for one. They gave me 10. Wow. Dance. Yeah. At Impulse Dance. Um, so I did 10 workshops. Then I got invited back there this year to do another 10. Sadly, because of the pandemic, that's been... Um, that's not happening, but they've secured um, my position and space uh, to come and teach in Impulse Dance 2021. Uh, so that's at the International Dance Festival. It was also um, at the Bali Spirit Festival this year was supposed to be. It's now um, going to be there next year. Um, the most exciting thing that I did not see coming, this is, I don't think you know this, Daniela, this is the most exciting thing, um, so uh, one of the girls who came to Vienna last year, she came to do the workshop and she had brought her husband in. in. And her husband's Indian. And he had seen it, spoken to her, and then he said, oh, can we have a meeting? And we had a meeting. And then we had more and more discussions and they've now offered me a 17-day Dance of the Deities India tour to go through... India, I know, down from the east down 
the uh, to the south to all the locations of the temples of the deities in India to do dance of the deities there, wow. ending with Hanum, ending with Hanuman at the narrow point between India and Sri Lanka, where in the mythology he lives over to reclaim Sita. I get chills. Oh, wow. <laughs> this, you know yeah. what a like, you know, circle. yeah, full circle. Wow, this is. Andrew, I'm so happy for you. And, and I think it's such a beautiful story to look at how, and we just talked about this in another episode of how to work with the creativity that comes through, the trusting of what's coming through and the surrender of something bigger than you are. Because a lot of things people are, what is my ego and what is my intuition? What is being led and what is source? And you just kind of within your story showed, you know, this creativity, this wanting to do something, not really knowing what it is, knowing that it's bigger than you and surrendering to that path of, of just showing up. So we're allowing to come. Yeah. allowing it to just yeah. kind of come through um such a beautiful thing Andrew I mean yeah <laughs> it, 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 you, can't even we'll come next can year you believe, can, <laughs> I would love to see you there that would be amazing but can you believe Daniela from that from a, a, a small sequence that I'm teaching in class and Katie saying what are the counts <laughs> to then suddenly taking a life of, of its own that three years later um, this is all happening. I, I think you've really hit it is that we, we have to surrender to the higher grace and I think the only thing that I would want to share to anyone who's listening, listening is I, when that impulse comes and when that voice comes like the Dance of the Deities, or when any, my intuition speaks loudly and persistently and repetitively, I say yes. I take the opportunity. And it doesn't mean that I'm, sometimes I'm shit scared. Sometimes I'm, you know, oh, my God, how am I, what? How am I going to do this? And I override that with what would love to now? Go. If this is what's coming through, go. And the universe will look after all the details. Um, which which brings me to, to, you know, to kind of close it up a little bit. I think I remember mm. walking away from that training in Bali. And one of the things that I wrote in my journal, just kind of as I was leaving the training and, and kind of processing everything was you have, and you said it, you have, there's two, there's two wars. You can say that, which war are you fighting? Are you fighting the war of, um, fear or the war of love so which like you just said which is your intention are you fighting the love fight or are you fighting the fear fight and within that is every time that feels bigger than ourselves it feels overwhelming that feels all these things is like focus on the love and the blessings and whatever you can extract of that situation to continue to go and know that the universe is supporting you that you are held in grace that you are not being abandoned at any moment, at any second. Yeah. I mean, we were all, we're all born, excuse me, to, um, to live, you know, the, our greatest potential in this flesh. What that is, is um, up to you, each, each individual, to have that conversation with their higher source, whatever name they might give that, and follow the guidance of that. And whatever your dharma is, whatever your purpose is, it's going to be 
by and through discovering who you are ultimately beyond this flesh. Like for me, if I really distill it down, what I'm committed to is love. That is my true nature. Um, then looking at what are, what are your creative gifts and talents and skills, and they don't have to be, you know, big and fancy free. They can just be that you are kind and compassionate. But I think with Dharma it's the, it's, uh, and purpose is how can I serve with that? How can I be of service? Um, rather than what am I going to get out of it is I always ask this question, how can I be of service rather than what's in it for me first? And by shifting that perspective, um, then I can speak with great conviction that the universe has taken over and I simply follow the impulses that are guiding me and directing me. And when I go into fear and contract, I know that I'm blocking that. So I shift it to what would love do now? And I go, all right, let's go. It's being held. I'm being held. What I would say, though, this is something that I think is important to, for each individual to cultivate. I think, Lena, you, you really touched on this earlier. It's like what's my spiritual practice and what's something that, that keeps me um, aligned with my spiritual practice. And that is to practice prayer and chanting as one of my tools. Um, you know, it might be meditation, it might be asana, whatever your thing is, or it might be swimming or going for a walk in nature. But when we quieten down the mind enough, we then are able to get a real distinction between the chatter and the fear mind and recognising the higher mind and the higher voice. There is a clear distinction for me between those voices. There's still my voice in my head, but one is, one is discombobulated and restless and unsure. My high voice or the, the voice of the divine within is very clear. It's very resonant. It's very persistent. It won't kind of leave me alone. Um, and uh, it's got a, a, a different tone to it. It's got this real depth and I trust it. So I think what I would share to anyone who's listening is to whatever your practice is, whatever your spiritual practice is, hone that skill or that uh, to discover what your in intuition is and what your intuitive voice sounds like or feels like to you so that then you can know when it's calling you and follow that. Very beautiful. And I'm sure we could sit here for hours. I just feel like <laughs> the conversation could go on and on and on, but maybe we have to round it up a little bit. And we're so right. very grateful for you taking Thank the time you. and to share your your wisdom with uh, our listeners and with the world. So any last thing you want to say? Or where can talk? people, yeah, where can people find you? What are you, your projects? Where can they expect from you? <laughs> um, okay. So the best way to stay in touch um, is through social media. So Instagram, I'm on divine grace yoga, all one word, D-I-V-I-N-E grace yoga. Um, if you want to see Dance of the Deities, uh, so on, on the Divine Grace Yoga pages, there's, I usually post up on, on events and workshops. But if you want to see some of the videos of the Dance of the Deities, just hashtag Dance of the Deities and um, you'll see all of the videos. You'll even see you up there, didn't you? You're up Ooh. there somewhere. <laughs> um, all of the, I am. I 
remember all, that. Video. All of <laughs> it'll be very early on, so scroll down. Uh, <laughs> but it'll be one of the earlier videos because you were the first. Yours was the first one. So um, yeah. So yeah, dance of the hashtag dance of the Davies. Or on Facebook under my name, Andrew Morneas, M-O-U-R-N-E-H-A-S is my surname. Um, But uh, the Dance of the Dadies website is actually, it's it's ready to launch in the next three weeks. So um, that'll have all the events that are coming up. I mean, pretty much everything's been shifted till um, next year, but I am doing Zoom um, online dance of the deities, which is coming soon. So stay tuned on that one. So yeah, just follow the Divine Grace Yoga Instagram and um, or my uh, homepage on Facebook, and you'll find those. Um, I set up soon. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, definitely, I'll definitely keep a look on the Zoom ones because I would love to be part of it. They're so beautiful, and you know, to see <laughs> the the, trend, the the development of like what it was when you know when we did it for the first time to now what it looks like. So, but thank you so much, Andrew, for your time, for your wisdom, for your energy. It really is such a grounded presence, and and you are so surrounded by all these archetypes and all these energies and all this wisdom that your body is just an instrument of. So what a, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so, so, so much. That's my absolute pleasure, darling. Thank you so much to both of you for inviting me. I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful. So thank you. And thank you guys for listening. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. So thank you so much. If you got any little tips and any little, you know, pieces of wisdom through this episode, please share with us. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to um, see if you have any other uh, beautiful and amazing people that you like us to interview. So keep us posted and we hope you have a beautiful rest of your day. Bye guys. Bye-bye. See you next time. Thank you so much for turning into Misted Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know your thoughts. Leave us a review and share it with your friends who might benefit from this conversation. 